Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. On this episode of Cardioscripts, Liz will be interviewing Dr. Kristen Pogue on the Victoria trial. We hope you enjoy. On Cardioscripts today, we are so excited and honored to be joined by Dr. Kristen Pogue. Dr. Pogue is a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology at Michigan Medicine in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and an adjunct clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. Her clinical practice includes a mix of both ICU and general cardiology services, pulmonary arterial hypertension, and advanced heart failure and transplant. She also serves as the PGY2 Cardiology Residency Program Director and does a ton of other things, and so we're really excited to get to steal her away um, and have her on CardioScripts today. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking with Kristen about the Victoria trial, and just to give you all an overview, the purpose of this trial was to evaluate the efficacy and safety of Verisigwat, an oral-soluble guanylate cyclase stimulator in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and chronic heart failure with recent decompensated heart failure. This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial just presented in March 2020. They randomly assigned patients in a one-to-one ratio. They started out at a dose of 2.5 milligrams of verisigwat or matching placebo. Doses were increased every two weeks to 5 milligrams, and the target dose was 10 milligrams daily. They included patients who were 18 years or older, were NYHA classes 2, 3, or 4. They had an ejection fraction of less than 45% and had to have elevated natriuretic peptides within 30 days before randomization. They also categorized patients into three cohorts based on evidence of worsening heart failure, and those were those that were hospitalized within three months, those hospitalized three to six months before randomization, and those who received IV diuretic therapy without hospitalization within the previous three months. They excluded patients with a systolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters of mercury, those on concurrent use of PDE5 inhibitors, long-acting nitrates, soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators, IV inotropes, or those with an implantable LVAD. They also excluded patients who had had an ACS event or PCI within 60 days prior to randomization, or who had an EGFR of less than 15, or were on chronic dialysis. The primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death, or first hospitalization for heart failure, and the pre-specified safety outcomes included symptomatic hypotension and syncope. But now into the results. So they included 5,050 patients, and the median follow-up time was 10.8 months. Patients were about 67 years of age, 76% were male, 64% white, 5% black, and about 11% of those included were in North America. 67% uh, of patients included were hospitalized for heart failure within the previous three months. The mean ejection fraction was 29%. 59% of patients were NYHA class 2, 
40% class 3, and 1.3% 4. The mean systolic and diastolic blood pressures were about 121 over 73 millimeters of mercury. 47% were diabetic, 79% with hypertension, and about 58% with coronary artery disease. In terms of baseline medications, about 73% were on an ACE or an ARB, 93% on a beta blocker, and 70% on an MRA. About 15% of patients were on Secubitril Valsartan. The median trial dose was 9.2 milligrams in both groups. And about 89.2% of patients received 10 milligrams of the target dose in the Verisigwa group. Now, in terms of the primary outcome, they found that it occurred in 35.5% of those on Verisigwa and 38.5% of those on placebo, the p-value of 0.02. Should be noted, though, that this was driven by a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations. With regards to safety outcomes, serious adverse events occurred in 32.8% and 34.8% of those on Verisiguat and placebo, respectively. Symptomatic hypotension occurred in 9.1% and 7.9% of those in the Verisiguat and placebo groups, and syncope 4% and 3.5%. Again, and those on verisiguat and placebo. Should be noted that for symptomatic hypotension and syncope, they did not find a statistically significant difference between the two groups. And so Kristen, what are your overall thoughts? Yeah, so I think when we think about our treatment of HEFREF in general, we've gotten to a point where we're having to look at multiple novel therapies being simultaneously evaluated without direct head-to-head -head comparisons and being forced to kind of choose amongst these therapies based on cross-trial comparisons. I was excited, anxiously awaited the, the trial results for Victoria and trying to see where it might fit in terms of the options that we do have available to treat this higher risk half-ref population. Um, I do have to admit, I had mixed feelings uh, when digging into and digesting the data. There's some clear advantages of the trial. It did include, there was an intentional selection of a high-risk population, as you noted, about two-thirds of the population having been hospitalized within the past three months. We know that these patients are at higher risk for rehospitalization and mortality than a quote-unquote stable heart failure population. And we don't have any previous therapies that have shown benefit in this particular group. This high risk was evidenced by the higher than anticipated event rate. That was actually more than twice seen in some of the other trials we might kind of compare in a little bit here. Additionally, this is a unique pathophysiologic target looking at the nitric oxide soluble guanylate cyclase cyclic GMP pathway rather than targeting the compensatory mechanisms or upregulation of things like the sympathetic nervous system and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, we're actually directly targeting the known deficiencies that we see in nitric oxide and cyclic GMP in the heart failure population. Trial, certainly not without its limitations. You mentioned a lot of these things kind of in the overview, but patients were on reasonable background therapy, but would have liked to have seen more aldosterone antagonist use, not just in this trial, but in lots of trials and in clinical practice, to be honest. It was similar to that that we saw in the Depagliflozin study and also a little bit better than what we saw in the Secubitril Valsartan study. Additionally, you kind of highlighted the adverse effects um, reasonably well tolerated without statistically more syncope or symptomatic hypotension, again, as you highlighted, which were concerns from the phase 2b study. The primary outcome, as you also said, you know, driven by reduction in heart failure 
hospitalizations and the lack of reduction in cardiovascular death, unlike what we've seen with some of the other drugs when we're kind of talking about comparing. And I think that's kind of the Ultimately, we may end up having more questions than answers from this trial in terms of where its its use is. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great overview, Kristen, and kind of goes into some of the questions I have for you about this trial. You talked about the baseline medications. Could you go more specifically into those who are on ARNI therapy? So we had about 15% of those on ARNI therapy. In thinking about paradigm, how do we go about reconciling Victoria with some of that other data? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think something that we're going to continue to struggle with. We have the data from Paradigm showing Secubitrol Valsartan to be superior to our standard of care uh, at the time with, with ACE inhibition. And we kind of continue to struggle to even get patients onto to that therapy um, in terms of access and cost. So I think that underlies some of the issues that we have, although blood pressure is a, is a concern as well in getting patients on RNA therapy. And so that's obviously a dual concern when we're adding another vasodilatory agent with varisiguat. Looking at comparisons with the DAPA study, there was, it's actually similar RNA use than the DAPA-HF. That was about 11% in that study, so not unlike uh, what we saw there. But I think that's a really big question mark to know how this drug is would fare in addition to standard therapy that included ARNI. And that, that's not something that we have a, a really great answer to based on these data. What are your thoughts, too, when we're thinking about DAPA-HF, you know, the results that we saw with an SGLT2 inhibitor? We didn't really have any information on what anti-diabetic therapy they were on, and we had about 47-ish percent who had this baseline diagnosis of, of diabetes. So another question of just how do we go about reconciling, as you mentioned in your overview, you know, all this data that's coming out. Yeah, I think um, that's another question that obviously the trials were going on in a somewhat similar time frame. So that's uh, somewhat to be expected. I think when we look at trials, it's easy to look at hazard ratios and say, this is, you know, the hazard ratio looked better in DAPA than the hazard ratio in terms of the primary uh, event than it did in Victoria. I think the things that we kind of have to think about when we're comparing across trials is that these are not the same baseline patient population. Victoria was certainly a higher baseline risk population based on the placebo event rate difference between the groups. It was almost uh, between two and three times higher in Victoria. Um, I think additionally, the follow-up was a lot different. So the Victoria um, enrolled patients much more quickly than they anticipated and had a higher event rate. And so the median duration of follow-up um, was only 11 months, as you said, 10.8 months. Whereas in DAPA-HF, those patients' uh, median follow-up was 18 months. So we had a longer duration. So it's probably when we're kind of comparing outside of looking at hazard ratios, trying to look at an annualized event rate between the trials to maybe have a better sense of uh, what those look like. And if you look at the event rates based on per 100 patient years and looking at the absolute risk reduction between the trials, they're actually somewhat comparable. The primary outcome, the absolute um, reduction in annualized from Victoria was 4.2% as opposed to 4% in DAPA-HF. So almost the same numbers needed to treat 24 versus 25. So I think that should make us feel a little bit better in terms of Verisigwat's efficacy. However, 
because these are not the same patient populations, we can't necessarily say which one is better. Um, I think in the diabetic population, I would tend towards saying if we can use an agent that's going to be beneficial for multiple of their comorbidities, given issues with polypharmacy, I think dipagliflozin would kind of win out in that situation. So I think Vericiguat's going to struggle to find its uh, spot. This trail, not different than a lot of other trials we've seen in our heart failure population, um, had a lower enrollment of Black patients. So about 5% who were included were Black. And this is a, a big question in general with management of this population and heart failure. And I think it leads to a lot more. But I'm interested on your thoughts. Where is Vericiguat's role, I guess, in this population? And do we even know as of now? Yeah, another great question. I think uh, this is a common unfortunate theme that we have under representation of the Black population in our heart failure, not just our heart failure studies, but uh, particularly in our heart failure studies and trying to determine if those patients really benefit. This is not unique to looking at the paradigm study, right? So there's still a lot of questions. Does the African-American or the Black population benefit from secubitril valsartan knowing that we have data from AHEFT showing the additional benefit of nitrates and hydralazine in that patient population. I think that's a question mark for one of the drugs that is clearly been shown to be superior to ACE. So that's one big question. And then Verisiguat, outside of its lack of inclusion uh, of the Black population, is contraindicated in combination with nitrate therapy, as you kind of mentioned um, in the exclusion criteria, because of the profound hypotension that can develop. So I think that's another big question of, I don't think that we know. And I would say that that probably rules out that uh, the population, in my opinion, based on the data that we currently have, knowing that nitrates and hydralazine are beneficial in addition to our our guideline-directed medical therapy, I'd probably advocate from a, thinking about cost and access for isosorbide, dinitrate, and hydralazine as compared to even RNA therapy and then even Verisiguat, to be completely honest. Any final thoughts, Kristen? Anything that you'd like to touch on and, and what takeaways do you want uh, listeners to, to walk away with when they're caring for these patients? Yeah, I think um, another one of the kind of questions that are going to complicate things are the question about REMS programs for access as well. Patients had the same requirements that if they were female of uh, childbearing potential, had the same requirements for contraception in the trial as um, is the case currently with Riosiguat in the pH population. And that is a, a part of a REMS program for any female of reproductive potential. So that's going to add a whole other layer of complexity in terms of access um, to, the, to these therapies. I think the key takeaway is that we finally do have something, some signal that perhaps targeting this pathway may be beneficial, the um, nitric oxide soluble guanylate cyclase uh, cyclic GMP pathway in patients who are a higher risk population. So we're showing a benefit in those patients, be it hospitalization only at this point in time. I think there's still a lot of questions, as I've said, and I think we need to have more data in terms of cost-effectiveness before we're able to really place this in therapy. But key points um, that we've talked about, really, it's it's a once-a-day medication, but dipagliflozin is also a once-a-day medication and may be able to be kind of uh, two birds with one stone, if you will, treating the diabetic population with heart failure, knowing the, the comorbidity there, and really just thinking about your patient. 
Well, Kristen, on behalf of Tracy and I, we just want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on CardioScripts today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. In two weeks, we'll be discussing with Vicki Grew, a secondary analysis of the GUIDED trial. Hope you can join us for a discussion of guideline-directed medical therapy and heart failure. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.